Thank you for listening to the Faith Free Lutheran Sermon Archive. Tonight's sermon, for the second Wednesday in Lent, is preached by seminarian Jeremy Nickenen. If you have questions about tonight's sermon, please call the church office at 612-824-5527 or visit our website, faithlutheran-aflc.org. Now let's join in and hear what God has to say to us today. Good evening and welcome again to Faith Free Lutheran Church. So traditionally, the season of Lent has been a solemn and penitential season, a time for a focus on repentance, beginning with Ash Wednesday and the words, remember you are dust, and to dust you shall return, and then ending on Holy Saturday. These 40 days are usually a somber time set aside for prayer and fasting. Now, I think this is a benefit of some church traditions that have been handed down to us, as we walk through the church year, we, get to, we have times where we get to engage with the wide variety of human emotions that we have. Now, as we know, life on this earth isn't always sunshine and roses. And I, for one, have had many times of sorrow over the last several years, as I know others have. And I've appreciated having a time set aside in the church year where it's a little easier to work through those experiences and emotions, and where I'm reminded that Christ, my Savior, suffered too. But with that being said, our text this evening may bring an odd contrast to the somber attitude. This text is a very clear summary of the gospel and the good news of what God has done for us. And with such a strong pronouncement of God's grace for us, it is only natural for us to respond with joy. So perhaps tonight we can take a little break from the gloom. The text this evening is from Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. Please stand with me as we read God's word. Titus 3, verses 3 through 7. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior." So that being justified by his grace, we might, come, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Dear Lord, these are your words, and your word is truth. Sanctify us today in your truth. Convict us of sins where that is necessary, and strengthen and encourage us, strengthen and encourage us with the promises of your gospel. In your name, amen. You may be seated. So this letter to Titus contains a lot of practical instructions and requirements. In other words, it has a lot of focus on the law. So we see a list of requirements for elders, instructions for older men and older women, younger men and younger women, and workers or slaves. In Titus, Paul dedicates a vast amount of time to these instructions for holy living. 
And if you don't view the letter as a whole, but only as its parts, you could come away thinking that that might be all there is. In our nature, we seek to make ourselves righteous by our own efforts. We are quick to latch on to the thought that maybe we can just do something to save ourselves. This can be a temptation with Lenten practices that, done with the wrong emphasis, may make us feel that we're doing something to become more holy or more righteous on our own. But Paul leaves no room for this. He knows the human nature well. He does not allow this letter to be merely an instruction manual. While proclaiming that we should be devoted to good works, Paul makes sure to bring our good works into their proper focus. Good works are never done to earn our salvation. Instead, good works flow from that salvation that God has lovingly given to us. Now, as we take the walk through this text tonight, I want us first to acknowledge one thing. We have a problem, and that is sin. As we reflect on the law, it's easy for us to look around and see the ways that the world around us falls short. The verses right before our passage call for submission to authorities, obedience, readiness for good works, speaking evil of no one, avoiding quarreling, gentleness, and courtesy towards all. Now, does this sound very much like the world around us? It, just look at cable news as one example, and the answer is clearly no. Rejection of authority, quarreling, and belligerence are the norm. Ignoring Luther's instruction on the Eighth Commandment, it is popular to put the worst possible construction on everything our neighbor does. Courtesy and gentleness towards others, especially others on the other side, is seen as being weak. Malice and envy seem to rule the day. I could go on, but it's dangerous, dangerous for us to spend too long looking outward and focusing on the sins of the unbelievers around us. It's easy for us to brandish the sword of the law at others. But Paul does not allow us to remain there. He quickly reminds us of our condition and our fallen nature. We were also like that. The sword is pointed at us. Foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. It sounds just like those cable news people, and that was us. In our worst moments, that still is us. Chrysostom, in his homily on this text, urges us to be gentle towards unbelievers and breakers of the law. He says, For he who was formerly in such a state, that is, the state of sin, and has been delivered from it, ought not to reproach others, but to pray and to be thankful to him who has granted both to him and them deliverance from such evils. Let no one boast, for all have sinned. If then, doing well thyself, or if you do something good, thou art inclined to revile others, or to hate others, consider thy own former life and the uncertainty of the future, and restrain your anger. He goes on to remind us that even if we have led relatively good lives in the sight of the world, we still have our own sins, and even the good things that we have done are not because we are such good people, but because of the grace of God. 
We should thank God for those who came before us and who taught us the faith and kept us from some, such blatant and unholy, li- blatant unholy living. But on the other hand, we should also remember the reality that sin leaves us not as just perpetrators of sin, but victims too. Paul brings out that we are not only haters of others, but we're also hated by others. This malice and uncharitable attitude harms us all. I mean, have you ever known someone who just always thinks the worst of everything you do? It's a miserable existence to constantly be under attack. And it's equally miserable to be the one with this malicious, envious, hateful attitude. It's miserable and it hurts us. But this is the way we act in our sin. Without God, mankind tears itself apart. In our obsession with our own passions and pleasures, we neglect to love each other. This self-seeking leads us to our own destruction. And wouldn't it be awful if God left us that way? But he didn't. So, we have this major problem, our sin. But God has the solution, our Savior. Our passage continues on. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. In this passage, we see the full Godhead at work in our salvation, all three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what a clear proclamation and such a stark contrast to what we once were. In God's goodness, love, kindness, and mercy, we have been justified, that is, made righteous. Our sins have been washed away and we are made new. We are made heirs of eternal life, adopted as sons of God. We are promised the inheritance of salvation. It is our gracious God who does this for us, who saves us. This is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, we may ask, why did God save us? It's again made clear that salvation is not because of anything we've done. If God was waiting for us to be righteous on our own, we would never be saved. Our lives are so tainted by sin, we cannot even dream of saving ourselves. So if not because of us, then why did God save us? God saved us, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. First, God is good. As one person put it, he he is disposed to bless us. God wants us to be blessed. He's kind toward us. He wants to do what is good and to bring about what is good for our sake. Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. God saved us because he is good. Second, God acts out of his love for mankind. The word translated by the ESV as as loving kindness is the word we get our English word philanthropy from, the love of mankind. 
For God so loved the world, world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God saved us because he loves us. Third, God is merciful. It's been said that mercy is when we don't get what we do deserve. Mercy is when we don't receive the just punishment for our sins. Our God saves us according to his abundant mercy. In Lamentations, we read about the mercies of God that never end. They are new every morning. God saves us because of his great mercy. And lastly, God saved us because he is gracious. Grace is when God gives us what we don't deserve, namely his salvation. Grace is God's undeserved love. Throughout scripture, over and over again, we are reminded about God's grace towards his people. When God clothed Adam and Eve after the fall in the garden, that was his grace. When he saved Noah and his family in the ark, that was his grace. When he counted Abraham as righteous by faith, that was his grace. When he delivered his people from Egypt, that was his grace. When through Jesus' death and resurrection, we receive salvation, that is his grace. Over and over, Scripture repeats the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God saves us because of his grace. Nothing we have done or could do has saved us. The triune God has saved us only because of his goodness, his loving kindness, his mercy, and his grace. So, we have a problem, our sin. God has our solution, our Savior. But how do we receive this solution? God also provides the way. He provides the way through baptism. In our gospel text for this evening, we see that no one can enter the kingdom of God that has received salvation unless they are born again. Jesus explains to Nicodemus that to receive salvation, you must be born of water and the Spirit. Jesus was teaching about baptism. God saves us by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's what baptism is. This is how God applies his grace to us. In baptism, our sins are washed away and we are saved. Romans 6 teaches that in baptism, our old self was put to death, buried with Christ, and we were brought to new life, made alive again with Christ. Baptism is a new birth, the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. We are made a new creation by faith. As Luther's Catechism teaches, and I'm guessing this was probably the lesson for last week, but I don't know for sure. But baptism works the forgiveness of sins, delivers from death and the devil, and gives everlasting salvation to all who believe, as the word and promise of God declare. This is all the work of the Holy Spirit, whom God poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. By the water and the word, the Holy Spirit produces faith in our hearts, bringing us to salvation. And how is it possible that God can do such great things through water baptism? This brings us to the text of our Lenten catechesis from Luther's small catechism. It is not the water, indeed, that does such great things, but the word of God connected with the water, and our faith which relies on that word of God. For without the word of God, it is simply water and no baptism. 
But when connected with the word of God, it is a baptism. That is a gracious water of life and a washing of regeneration in the Holy Spirit. By baptism, through the work of the Holy Spirit, by the water and the word of God, we are justified and made heirs. God has written you into his will. This is a sure thing for all who believe. We are insured through our baptism of the inheritance of eternal life. So, we have a problem, our fallen condition of sin. You need Jesus. You need to be saved from the way that you are, from the way that you were. You cannot save yourself. But God has a solution, our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is merciful. He has saved you. He has redeemed you. He has made you an heir. God also provided a means for you to receive this, and that is baptism. Now, if you have not received this, if you've not previously believed, I invite you to come to believe on Jesus and all that he has done for you, that he is good, loving, merciful, and gracious towards you, that he paid the price for your sins. Come and be baptized. Receive the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. God promises that he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. And to the rest of us who already believe and have been baptized, as we continue through this solemn season of Lent, I encourage you to continue to have sorrow over your sin. Continue to consider areas of your life where you may need repentance. Meditate on the sufferings of Christ and all that he has done for you. But don't lose sight of the focus. Don't miss the point. Easter is coming. The sorrow may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. The goodness and loving kindness of our Savior has appeared so that you may be saved. And now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.